So uh, let's dive in this morning, Acts chapter 9. We will begin, and this will be our last week in Acts chapter 9. Uh, last week in looking at the life of Paul for some weeks because the book of Acts transitions back to the life of Peter for some weeks. But we will be focusing this morning particularly on Acts chapter 9 verses 15 and 16. And then you can also turn over, uh, holding your finger there, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This morning we're going to read both of these because 15 and 16 speak to the call of the sufferings of Christ in the life of Paul. And I believe we can't pass by this without looking at this because this is unusual. None of us want to be, none of us naturally want to be called to suffering. That's something that is not a part of what we want to do. But in Paul's life and in every Christian's life, the Lord is going to use hardship according to his purposes for his glory to shape our lives that we might walk and live with him. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is Paul's listing of the sufferings of Christ born out in his life. So we're going to see in 15 and 16 the calling and the promise that this is going to happen. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, we're going to see how it actually worked out in Paul's life. So please stand to honor the word of the Lord as we read it today. Beginning in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 22. And we begin in verse 22 after six verses of Paul giving disclaimers about why it's not worthy for him to talk about himself because his life is not what matters. But then he gets into what the Lord has done in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Now, who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? I must boast. I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So Paul, who is called by God out of a place of prominence, out of a position of power within the established Jewish church in Jerusalem, going out with the imprimatur of the high priest to persecute those in the way, those who are in the way of Christ Jesus. 
is humbled along his way by the power of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he is told by the Lord Jesus that he will suffer. Ananias brings this message to him and says that you are going to suffer for Christ's sake. This is something that he's being set up for. He knows that it's coming. And later in his ministry, he recounts all of the sufferings that the Lord Jesus has brought into his life. And it is a long list. If you look at all those things, you think, wow, how could he have endured all of that? The shipwrecks, the beatings, the imprisonments, all the struggle. And yet in these things, he rejoices. And in these things, he walks in the same path as Jesus. Because Jesus walked a path of humility, a path of suffering in his own life, even unto death. And so Paul, who is called by God out of where he was uh, as a Jewish religious leader to a higher calling. But what is so interesting is that though he is called to a higher calling, he is set to a lower place. A higher calling, but a lower place. A place of isolation, a place of service, and a place of suffering. Now this is what we call a paradox, because it looks like a contradiction. How can you be called to a high office, to a great calling, and yet be set in a low place of suffering and of self-denial? But a paradox is something that seems to be a contradiction, but is not a contradiction. And this paradox of a high calling in Christ Jesus, but a low place in the world, is set up over and over and over again in the scriptures. To have a high calling, but to live in a low place, to lose your life, in order that you may gain your life, to be saved from God's wrath and yet called to die to yourself. Paul is appointed to sufferings, and these sufferings begin immediately in Acts chapter 9. If we go down just a few verses further in Acts chapter 9, we see that as Paul begins to preach Christ, that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, immediately in verse 23, after not many days have passed, the Jews plot to kill him. And he has to escape by being let down in the middle of the night through an opening in a wall by a basket that he might escape with his life. It's quite the scene uh, that he be able to not be killed early in his ministry. And as he goes on in Acts chapter 9 verses 26 and following, we find that when he goes to Jerusalem, the Christians that are there are afraid of him. Because they've heard all of who he was and the persecutor and the, the passionate anti-Christian that he was. And they're concerned that he hasn't really changed. That this is some ruse to draw them in. And when we go down to verse 29 in Acts chapter 9, we find the Hellenists there in Jerusalem also want to kill him. So in order for him to have his life preserved again, he's sent out and he goes into a period of exile in Tarsus where he was originally from. It's worth pointing out at this, at this time that there's more about this section of Scripture in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through two, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And it tells us that between, in Acts chapter 9, between verse 25 and 26, when he escapes uh, from the Jews by being let down in this basket in the wall, that he has a three-year period of, of break. He goes, and, uh, goes to the desert in Arabia for a period of isolation before he goes to Jerusalem. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us, uh, often in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, between one verse to the next, there can be many years that pass. 
And the book of Acts reads to us as something that happens very quickly. But it doesn't happen very quickly because nothing happens very quickly in the church. As we grow in Christ, these things happen slowly. Discipleship is a slow growth process. And so it was with Paul. There were years between him fleeing initially and coming to Jerusalem. And we also learn from Galatians as Paul speaks to us about what happened after Acts chapter 9 verse 30. And it says this, And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They didn't want him to be killed by the Hellenists. And so he goes back to Tarsus and he tells us in Galatians chapter 2 that he was there for 14 years. Many people don't realize that. They think this whole thing with Paul was happening real quick. It wasn't. He went to Tarsus for 14 years as he grew in the Lord and was quiet, waiting on the things of the Lord. And that is what happens between Acts chapter 9 verse 30 and Acts chapter 11 verse 25, which we'll get to in some weeks. But there is an outbreak of Christianity in Antioch. And Barnabas uh, comes on the scene because the connection between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11 with the calling of Paul and then the work of Barnabas to bring Paul into the ministry is very important. But 14 years on the sideline is important. Paul was a passionate person. He was passionate before going in the wrong direction as we talked about last week. He's passionate for Christ afterwards. And if you know many passionate people, passionate people don't like to do what? Sit on the sideline and be stuck off to the side. They want to be involved with the fight. They want to be doing what God wants them to do. But I can tell you, God often calls us to wait on the sideline. And one of the big reasons for that is for us to realize that this work is not our work. This work is the Lord's work. The church is built up apart from Paul, and then he's brought in, and it's furthered through Paul, but it's not about Paul. So in Acts chapter 11, we have the church breaking out again uh, in Antioch, and the church from Jerusalem sends Barnabas, the son of encouragement there, to see what is going on in that church. And when he gets there and he sees Gentiles coming to the Lord and the church being built up in a non-Jewish area, he remembers back to this man named Paul who came and visited them in Jerusalem and told them about this incredible experience that he had on the Damascus Road and how God had called him and was going to use him to build up the the church uh, of the Gentiles and how God had called him to this and that how he was going to have to suffer in order for this to be accomplished. But then he kind of vanished and went away because he had been persecuted. Well, Barnabas goes and retrieves Paul from his exile in Acts chapter 11, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And he is back in the mix. He's back into the service of the church, and he never goes out from there again. Because the Lord has done whatever he was doing in Paul's heart during that period of time to shape him and to mold him and to take him from where he was and to prepare him for the servant that he would be to the church going forward. His life is, from that point forward, poured into the church. Twice in his later letters, Paul describes his ministry to the church as a life that is poured out as a drink offering for the sake of the faith of those in the church. 
A very interesting example. An offering is something that's given up to God. And it is something that is used up in the process. So a drink offering is the idea of of something being poured out, poured out for the sake of God, but when it is poured out, it is gone. And his life being like that, the energies, the strength, the time of his life being poured out for the sake of Jesus and for the church. And at his very last moments, uh, he specifically speaks to this. I'll get to that in just a minute. His life is lived for Jesus. It is lived for the church. He suffers to accomplish God's will in the church. He pours out all of the energies of his life for the sake of Christ Jesus and the salvation of the lost. And he dies in this striving towards this end. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? The answer is absolutely yes. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and following, Paul writes this. This is one of the last few sentences that he writes. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He has poured out his life. All the sufferings that were listed have been a part of his journey, but he is not sad about these things. He does not regret having poured out his life for Christ, but knows that it will enter into eternal life, to an eternal reward. He has been faithful to what God called him to do, and he is rejoicing in it and encouraging Timothy, the next generation, to also enter into these same things, being faithful in serving the church and reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we look at Paul's call and we look at this example of suffering and we see his passion and the purpose of his ministry, what should that mean for us? Because it's always a part of this is, all right, how does this relate to me? And 2,000 years later, how am I supposed to understand this? My understanding of Paul's ministry, though it was somewhat specific to him, is under the greater umbrella of the call of discipleship that applies to every single one of us. And the call of discipleship in Paul's life is the same as the call of discipleship in all of our lives. Though it's going to work out slightly different in each person, it is always the same call. And this is the call that comes to us in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 through 26 Matthew 16, 24 through 26. If this is not marked in your Bible, this should be one of those passages that you mark like the Great Commission or John three sixteen. It is a central passage to all of the Christian life. Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So Paul's life and the suffering of Paul's ministry and the passion and the perseverance of Paul's ministry all fits under this umbrella of a call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. 
anyone is an all-encompassing category. There, is, there are no, uh, no, no person is cut out from that. No person is smart enough or rich enough or politically powerful enough or holds some position of standing where they no longer have to deny themselves and they no longer have to follow after Jesus because they themselves have somehow already arrived. If anyone would follow after Jesus, if Paul, as the powerful, zealous person that he was, was going to follow after Jesus, it was going to begin with him denying himself, taking up his cross and following after Jesus. It is restated in basically the same way in the next sentence here in Matthew chapter 16, which says, losing your life for Jesus' sake leads to finding your life. How is this? That you deny yourself and you end up finding yourself. You lose your life and you end up finding your life. These are the paradoxes that I was talking about before related to what the Lord is doing in our life. And it's part of what causes us to walk by faith. Because on its face, it does not make sense. And on its face, it looks like a dead end or something that will not lead to the end that we think it will lead to. I do not believe that we should seek suffering. Ananias told Paul that the Lord was going to bring suffering into his life. Paul did not seek suffering. What did Paul seek? He sought to deny himself and to follow after Jesus. That is the call that each of us have to discipleship. But as we deny ourselves and follow after Jesus, going not in the direction we want to go, but in the direction that God would have us to go, always there will be some level of suffering in our life. Always. What it's going to be in your life, whether it's going to be sickness, physical sickness, financial hardship, uh, some type of, of business hardship, I don't know what it's going to be. It's a little bit different in every single person's life here. But the Lord God uses hardship in our lives to accomplish his purposes and to glorify himself because what it does is it puts us in the place of need and dependence. God always would have us to be in a place of dependence upon him. Self-denial in its most basic sense is removing selfishness. Self-denial in its most basic sense is removing selfishness. It is stop doing what I want to do and start doing what God would have me to do. Stop doing what I want to do and start doing what God would have me to do. You are self-deceived in the same way that Paul was self-deceived if you think that what you want is the same thing as what God wants. It's not that case. The Lord is always shifting and changing our hearts and revealing to us more of who he is and what he would have us to be. And where we start and where we finish in Christ are going to be radically different places. Because the call to follow me is the exact same call that Jesus gave to all of his disciples. From the very first disciple, put down what you're doing and follow after me. Come after me. And every single one of those apostles and disciples didn't end up slightly different at the end. They didn't end up being a, a little bit happier tax collector or a, a more efficient fisherman. They became radically different people. And if you follow after Christ and deny yourself and take up the call of Christianity, as the years roll on, you will become a radically different person because you will become new in Christ. Paul was not slightly different at the end of his ministry than he was in the beginning of his life. 
from the time of being a persecutor of the church to having fought the good faith, the fight of faith, and dying and heading into an eternal reward, he was a radically different person. And this is a small picture of each of us as we go down through living the Christian life. Self-denial opens the door to knowing God. When we decide to die to ourselves and seek after Christ Jesus, it turns our mind's eye away from ourselves and to God. We begin to understand who God is and what his will is. And what happens is that it expands our person and it expands our horizon. We quite literally look up. Like, I've been looking down my whole life. Now I'm going to look up and I'm going to see that there's a God out there and that he has a will for my life and that there is so much more happening than what I thought was happening. We begin to not only look to God, but to look to people around us. We realize the call of Jesus to love and to serve other people. And we stop always looking at ourselves and see others. We realize and notice the needs and the concerns, both physical and spiritual, of people that are around us. And we begin by the call of Jesus to use the energy and the time of our life to meet those needs. Paul was all about Paul before Jesus and about raising his standing and being the man. But after he comes to Christ and begins to walk in this way of self-denial, he begins to lay down, not a little bit, but everything of who he was, that others might be saved, all the way to the point of saying, if I could be damned, if I could lose my salvation, that you might gain salvation, I would do it. That's a powerful statement. That is the, the greatest possible statement that any person could make in seeking after the well-being of another person. And that's where Paul was. All the possible, uh, the greatest possible level of self-denial. This selfless Christian life will take you to hard places. It will take you to the end of yourself. And what do I mean by that? As you follow after Jesus, you will find that you are entering into a place where you are at the end of your resources. You're at the end of your energy. You're at the end of your joy. You're at the end of your patience. You're at the end of your love. And you just don't have anything else to give. And what does that do? It creates a place of dependence before God. Where we say, God, I don't, I don't have any more. Will you please give me what I don't have? I'm out of love. I don't have any more love for the people that are around me. Will you bear love in my life? I don't have any more joy. Will you give me the joy that I need? Will you give me the patience that I need? I physically don't have the resources to provide for this family or for this church or for this whatever. Will you provide what is needed so that we might see your hand at work. And when we look at the life of Paul and we look at the life of Christians down throughout the ages, God always provides because he is faithful. We have seen that faithfulness work out in this church and I hope that it's been radically encouraging to you to see every need met by the hand of the Lord and not by the energies of any one person. So this life of self-denial that leads us to dependence, that takes us into a place of suffering so that we might turn our eyes towards the Lord and be strengthened by his spirit to enter into a life that we were never a part of before is the total opposite of the spirit of self-indulgence that consumes our culture in this day and age. 
And we need to understand that. When we say that we live in a non-Christian age, we do. And we live in an age that is consumed with self-indulgence, always looking to yourself. And I don't think this is something new to this age. I think it's always been this way in the world. People that do not love Jesus are about themselves and watching out for themselves. Always calculating what is best for me, what helps me, making sure that there's plenty of me time and plenty of, of my own money. That I got, There's only so many resources here, people, so I got to make sure I get mine. Like, you can get yours if I've gotten mine, but if I don't have mine, you're not getting yours. It is a, a self-absorbed culture, and I think one of the most recent... Uh, explanations of this, or uh, that's not the right word, the most recent uh, manifestations of this is uh, dink culture. So what is a dink? A double income, no kid couple. Doesn't mean they're married, but it's two people because at least the world has figured out that living completely alone is no good. And so they're going to try to at least bring some other person in here so that they can do whatever they want to do with that person. But, but there's boundaries here because it's still about me. And if you don't meet my needs, then I'm going to get rid of you and go find another person that will meet my needs. But double income, no kid means I get to do whatever I want. I take everything that I have and I get to spend it on me. I get to spend all my time on me. It's all about me and whatever makes me happy. And I need you to understand this morning that there's no place for this thinking in the Christian life. There is, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. There is no self-indulgent lane in the Christian life that we can just go and do what we want. There was no place for it in the life of Paul. Paul's life had to radically change and take on a totally different characteristic in order to serve Christ. He must lose his life in order to gain his life. The self-indulgent life causes you to turn inward and become smaller. Whereas the Christian life causes our head to be raised and to have a broader understanding of the world, the self-indulgent life is all inward turned. It causes us to be eat up with anxiety and turmoil as we look always to our own situation. As we are fixated on pleasing ourselves, fixated on getting what we deserve, fixated on what everybody else may think about us and about me at any given time. But when you walk into that room and you think, oh, everybody must be looking at me and thinking about me, what a, what a shocker to people to realize that nobody really cares about you <laughs> or what's going on with you. And especially in a fixated room where everybody's thinking about themselves, they don't think a thing about who you are. But this is where we live. They don't care about the spiritual. They don't care about the emotional or the physical struggles of others because it's all about me. So a person can be passing right by you that is in the throes of the hardest event in their life or have some incredible need and you miss it. They walk right past you because it's all about you and you don't see them at all. Their soul could be perishing and on its way to hell and you don't care because you're so caught up with the things in your own life that they just walk right past you and you don't say anything to them about Jesus. It is a pursuit of the vanities and pleasures of this world. As the, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, it is the grasping of the wind. It is the opposite of the Christian life, but it is the powerful spirit of our age. The authentic Christian life will be marked by self-denial, deep service to others, and a devotion to follow, excuse me, following after Jesus. I believe in the way in which Paul works out his ministry in the churches, he says, I will give up my life. 
that your, light, that your will, O Lord, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your, be, your will be done. And this is part of the Lord's prayer. It should be all of our prayers. Not my will, not my will, but yours be done. I will die to my plans to accomplish your plans, Jesus. I will not indulge myself, but with joy will serve others in Jesus' name. I will seek the lost that they may be found at any personal price to myself. That's one of the great lessons of Paul's life. That at any cost to himself, he would take the gospel to another person. No matter what the cost to himself, he would always pursue God's will. What does this look like in our day and age? As we try to you know, parse this out and take it from 2,000 years ago into where we are today. I think it means a number of different things. Well, let me just kind of go down a little bit of a list here. I think it means giving up where you want to live, to live where God would have you to live. Often what God will call you to will require you to live in a different place, in a place you wouldn't necessarily choose to live in. It is a call to display self-control, to live a sober life, to live a faithful life, especially in sexual matters. Unless you feel called to ministry as, a, as a, a heart passion, as Paul did, which caused him to not be married, I think the normal path is to be married and to have a family. And I challenge you to think about the blessing of children in a way that a large family is a good thing. Serving the body of Christ in a passionate way. So many people are just consumers of church. They come into church and they, they take and they want to see what they can get and they walk out the door and they criticize everyone that was there. But they're not actually serving in any real way. They're not involved in a sacrificial way in the body of Christ. Being involved. Being involved with the care of orphans, widows, the poor, the imprisoned in a very real and personal way. Striving to always put your spouse before yourself. Your spouse, if you are married, is the, the person that's closest to you than any other person in the world. And the easiest person to say, you know what? I deserve my time. I'm not putting you first anymore. I'm putting myself first because I deserve it. But the marriages that most reflect Christ Jesus are those that most die to themselves in both directions. And it becomes a contest of trying to outserve and outlove each other. Being known for great generosity, having a life that is not uh, consumed by seeking entertainment and relaxation, especially in the arena of sports. Our day and age people live for the times where they can relax and indulge themselves and entertain themselves and especially being involved with sports. Uh, I, I know there's a place for all those things. But if your life is consumed by those things and the, the orientation of your life and day and week and years of your life are oriented around those things, I would argue that you have lost your way as a Christian. Taking time to have meaningful conversations with other people, being hospitable, praying for people that are in need, sharing the gospel with them as the Lord opens the door. And so if this is the, the self-denying Christian life, if we turn it around, what does the self-indulging life look like? I think if we reverse all of these things, the self-indulging non-Christian life that is not following after Jesus says, I'm going to live wherever I want to live and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. 
I don't have to live a sober life and I don't have to live a sexually faithful life. I'm going to do whatever pleases me whenever I want to do it. If my spouse and my family and my children are not pleasing me, I will throw them away and get rid of them. I don't have to serve the church because what's the church doing for me? If the church does something for me, maybe I'll do something back for it. But it's not about Jesus, it's about me. I, the last thing in the world I want to do is be involved with orphans or widows or the poor or the imprisoned. I want to strive to have my spouse put me first because I deserve it. And if they put me first, then maybe I will serve them at some point. I'm not going to be generous because I have little already and I need to spend it on me. So why would I give to you unless you can give something back to me? And then maybe I'll give to you. My life needs more entertainment. It needs more relaxation. It needs more sporting events in it so that I can distract myself from the guilt and the suffering that's going to come from the way I'm destroying myself. I can take time uh, to have, I'm not going to take time to have meaningful conversations with people because I don't have the time. I'm doing other things. And then at the end of the day, actually, the longer you go down the line, you don't have anything meaningful to talk about. I know you've, I know you've been in the office where football is the only thing you can talk about. Nobody has anything else to talk about. And that's not good. I'm, I'm trying to make this point. If you can see that there are deeper things to life than the latest sports calendars. And when we come to the place where we don't have anything else to talk about, because that's the shallowness of our life, you're living out exactly what I'm talking about. You don't pray for people because you don't know how to pray. And maybe you don't know what to pray about because you don't know anything about their life. And their life never comes up in your mind, so you don't think about them. So you don't pray about them because you don't care about them. All of these things relate to a self-indulgent life. And I would warn you what the scriptures say about these things. That if this is your life, you had better enjoy it to the fullest now because that will be your only reward. You will die and come under judgment and be sent to hell. And your reward will be all that you can grasp from this life because there will be no eternal reward. Those who live for Jesus die to themselves and there will be an eternal reward. Their life looks like something that is not enjoyable and not rewarding, but it is a paradox. And I want you to grasp this. And if you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about, you need to think about this more. Because the more deeply we enter into the Christian life, to the world, it seems like suffering and struggle. But as Jesus bears his joy and his love in us, these ways become beautiful beyond compare. You read off this list of Paul's sufferings and beatings and imprisonments and struggles, and you ask Paul at the end of his life, Paul, would you, would you get rid of all this to be able to go back to where you started before you went down the road to Damascus? And I can guarantee you his answer is going to be absolutely not. It was all worth it. It was what Jesus had for me, and it's led me to this glorious place, and it is going to take me into heaven. And I am going to see the face of Jesus who I have served for my whole life, and he wouldn't trade one bit of it. For those of us who have walked with Christ for some time and have come to the end of ourselves in various ways, yes, it's been difficult, it's been hard, but that is where you meet the Lord. That's where he supplies your needs. That's where he fills your heart. That's where you come in contact with him the most. That's where you are the most glad to see the Lord Jesus working in your life as you follow after him. We gladly suffer for Jesus' sake. We're out of time here this morning because we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper, but I want you to think about this. 
and put this together because I, I wanted to preach on this because we can read right past that thing with Paul. He's going to suffer for my name's sake and say, oh, that's interesting. Maybe that was just for Paul. It's not just for Paul. Self-denial is for all of us. And the path of self-denial and following after Jesus is essential in the Christian life. And it is the opposite of this world. To illustrate this, um, I just this past week, it just kind of jumped off the page at me. I was listening to a little bit of a congressional hearing about fentanyl in the U.S. And um, there was a, fentanyl's everywhere, folks. People in our own community die every week from fentanyl. There's all kinds of things that could be said about that. But in this congressional hearing, there was a, a, a musician who I'd never heard of before named Jelly Roll. And um, this guy was giving a, a, a short speech, a testament, I don't know what you want to call it, but before Congress saying his word. I don't know how he got the chance to do this. But the guy did a great job. And he, it was a very moving statement. And he was an older person, but clearly had lived in the world, all kinds of ragged tattoos all over his face. But he spoke with a, a great passionate heart. And so when he finished, I said, I've got to listen to some of this guy's music, see what kind of music this guy has. And so I go to um, Amazon, first song, first song at the list. Whenever you look up the artist, the first song on the list is the most listened to song by that artist. And any artist that's popular and has a, a, their most listened to song means that's the song that connects the most with people's hearts, the song that people listen to over and over because they have some connection with it. And I'm telling you, this song is one of the saddest songs I've ever heard. And the way it's sung, and I'm going to read some of the words to you here, it is a cry from the heart of a person that has lived a fully self-indulgent life and has come to the end of themselves and realized this is all empty. I don't know what to do with myself, but none of this has resulted in what I thought it was going to result in. A life of self-indulgent that has brought only death, or as the Proverbs say, a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. So the name of the song is Save Me. Here's some of the words. Somebody save me, save me from myself. I'm spent so long living in hell. They say my lifestyle is bad for my health. It's the only thing that seems to help. All of this drinking and smoking is hopeless, but I feel like it's all that I need. Something inside me is broken. I hold on to anything that sets me free. I'm a lost cause. Baby, don't waste your time on me. I'm so damaged and broken beyond repair. Life has shattered my hopes and my dreams. I'm a lost cause. That is where you end up with a life of self-indulgence in this world. Jesus is telling you the truth. If you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, you will find a path that leads to life. Not only life here, but eternal life. And so let us, let us pray together. I encourage you to hear these things and believe them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we see the Apostle Paul not as a person that's so separated from us that we can never be like him, but that he is one who goes before, that we might follow him as he followed Christ. Lord, help us to be a people that embrace the call of discipleship and embrace the call of self-denial and following after Jesus. And that whatever suffering you may bring into our life in order to cause us to know you and enter into eternal life, that we would gladly accept this by faith. Lord, help us to love one another as you would have us to love one another. And as we look to you and as we seek to love our neighbor as ourself, 
Help us to see the hopeless, ruined people around us and pray for them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them that they might be saved, that they might come out of this hopeless death and know what it means to have life in Jesus Christ. If there is any here this morning that knows that they walk this path and think that they are too far gone to enter into the salvation of Jesus, may they know this is not true. May they submit themselves to your will this morning that they might have forgiveness and new life forever in Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.